Welcome to Between the Covers on KBOO Portland 97FM. I'm your host this week, Avi Marr. Kate Kennedy was born to Australian parents in Lincolnshire, England. As a young child, her family returned to Australia, where her father's position in the Air Force required the family to move around the country often. She graduated from the University of Canberra and recently completed her doctorate degree in creative writing from La Trobe University in Melbourne. Kate has worked as a freelance editor, a customs agent, a community arts worker, an organizer of street festivals, and a creative writing teacher in Australia and the United States. Often called the Australian Queen of the Short Story, her work has been featured in The New Yorker, World Literature Today, The Harvard Literary Journal, and Prospect Magazine, as well as ABC Radio National and numerous others. She has twice won the Age Short Story Prize. She's the author of a travel memoir, Sing and Don't Cry, a Mexican journal. The short story collections Dark Roots and Like a House on Fire. Dark Roots was shortlisted for the Steel Rudd Award in the Queensland Premier Literary Awards and for the Australian Society Literary Gold Medal. Her poetry collections include Joy Flights, Signs of Other Fires, and The Taste of Water. Welcome to Between the Covers, Kate Kennedy. Well, thank you very much for having me. So for people who may be newer to your work, I'm hoping we could start with a poem that you published during the first COVID lockdown. Could you read the smallest letters for us? Sure. This poem is called, as you said, The Smallest Letters You Can Read. We expect drama with our rupturing moments. The old story as catastrophe crashes like some theatrical CGI wave of catharsis and world out of joint. So why should it be here, outside the door of a room just disinfected and soon to be disinfected again after the presence of my daughter, who sits with her beautiful head pressed forward into the metal, rigid, as the shopping mall optometrist says, this is a pressure test. Sit still and look at the cross. Now blink. Get ready for the flash. Why here and now? Her first time out of the house in weeks, hurrying through the dystopic mall, stricken to disappointment. Not a wave, but an abyss. I look at her feet squarely on the floor, obedient, her hands red and ravaged with too much scrubbing, the mask covering everything but her eyes, the hunched shoulders holding the quelled anxiety. Why these tears now, leaking into my own mask, as the stun gun of light hits her retinas, and her head gives a wild, involuntary jerk. I hold myself in my chair. The optometrist says, okay, we'll do it again. My daughter whispers, I'm sorry. The apparatus between them calibrating and ticking, the flashing cross waiting. Astigmatism, a diagnosis to explain the blurred and unfocused world the numbers on the screen swimming, the straining for a recognisable horizon, the headache, haloed glare of an outside tipped over forever. My girl has become cowed and timid these last five months. Now she holds her head humbly in the vice while a masked stranger leans over and slides a new lens sideways and says, which is better, this or this? Of A and B, which is clearer? Okay, try again. Focus on the smallest letters you can read. It's this, 
the blinding moment as she and all of them, every one of them, mine and yours, so pale now, acquiescent and uncertain behind their closed doors as we tell them that for their own good, they must stare into this new sun and not look away. And they blink and try and apologize for flinching. Who would have thought the cataclysm would be so quiet, so neutrally delivered, so orderly? Better or worse, says the voice, brisk and all business. How about now? Better or worse? I wanted to ask you a bit about your history as a writer. Were you always writing? Uh, I was always reading, that's for sure. <laughs> as, you, as you said, I, um, uh, I was brought up in the Air Force. My dad was a navigator in the Air Force, so um, we were always moving around. Um, I had an older sister who was just 18 months my senior, and I just remember feeling very jealous that she got to go to preschool and kindergarten when I didn't because there were books there, there were letters there, there were things to do, there was paintings, they could do things. And I actually used to walk down um, to the school gate and wait for her to come out until finally the teacher said she may as well come in. It's a very small school. Uh. And I went in and I started school before I was even four just to hang out there. And so I can't remember a time that I really wasn't able to read. I remember teaching myself, looking at the pages and trying to, trying to see what the mystery was in there um, that was in those marks on the page. And that kind of love affair with that has never really left me because I still think sometimes about what's happening with literacy is, is we're looking at marks on the page, but we're, we're under a spell because it lets us forget we're looking at marks on a page. We're in some other world that we can drop into, mm. like going into the back of that wardrobe, you know, in Narnia and, it never leaves you that feeling of you do want to open a wardrobe in some strange house and put your hand in the back just in case, you know, just in case it's a portal into something else. And I think that's what fiction is kind of like. So I've always loved reading and because you moved around so much, um, uh, it was hard to kind of make long-term friendships and we couldn't really take very much with us because we just had to take our three toys and our box of things and, you know, go to the next sort of, uh, prefab or married quarters on other Air Force bases around the place. But no matter where we went and we sort of would get settled, I would just open up that box of books and they were the constant. Do you know what I mean? I had those constants in my life and whether they were picture books that I just seemed to memorise them on a whole other level. And so I was always interested in reading and I guess in writing too because <laughs> when you're at school, I was very bad at, uh, at maths and that kind of stuff at school and I would get all that kind of stuff wrong. But I realised one day that um, when we had to write some little story, I made up a little story about having a puppy that went into a spaceship and went to the moon. I'm, I don't know how I was very young. And I got a gold star on my, on my puppy to the moon project. And I thought, this is what you have to do. I lied. And look what happened. I kind of got it wrong and I got rewarded. You know what I mean? <laughs> So I thought this is for me, this is the thing to do, to actually be able to make things up and not um, not have the right answer, but to be creating something seemed like a great way to spend my daydreamy kind of time at the back of the classroom, you know. So, yeah, always loved it. So it sounds like, how many places did you live when you were little? Oh, probably about 10 or 11, yeah. So quite a few different schools. Um, and 
yeah, just moved around a lot. And um, this is uh, around Australia. Yeah, well, I was born in the UK, as you said. I was born in England. My dad was over there on a posting, and then uh, we came back when I was, I think, about three or four, perhaps four years old. Moved around probably every year or two years for a while, mm-hmm. and then uh, in my teen years, I met, I stayed at one school for the last few years of school. Um, and it often happens with kids who are in the military that after their parent leaves the military or they're an adult themselves, they tend to put down roots and stay in one place only. Um, very deep roots. And my sister and brother were very much like that, but I was never like that. I have since then lived in tons of places since. So I like moving around. I like kind of um, picking up stumps. And now I go to places and think, this is great. I could I could live here. So <laughs> so I've moved to different places and I've spent, I spent a couple of years living in Mexico. Um, I spent uh, a year living in Vanuatu in the South Pacific. Mm-hmm. Uh, came back and moved, you know, again and have been in the place I'm living now for about, five or six years or so so it's um yeah it's a constantly kind of shifting life and i really like it i like i like the constancy of the world of books and reading and writing and the constant changing of um living in different places and different climates and being able to experience different cultures and sometimes learning new languages uh, just doing different things i find really interesting and i've not finished with it yet either i don't really want to I haven't yet found my kind of bolt hole to finish up in yet, I don't think. <laughs> but it sounds like um, the constancy around all these moves and new places was your relationship with your imagination. That, it that, was. That, that expanded really out was. and books especially were this kind of constant. Yeah, that, they were. That's right. <laughs> and I must admit, there's a, you probably found this yourself and everybody who, you know, reads and writes in this way, that you're reading away and you, you're – you're, you're under the spell and you're sort of in that beautiful conjuring trick of not really a trick, it's a world. It's a world that's being conjured for you. Um, and then a day comes where you think, you stop and you think, how did they do that? Hang on a sec. When did I, uh, I remember very clearly reading a book story or something like that and thinking, hang on a second, hang on a second. When did he make me feel that person wasn't to be trusted? Wait a second. And you, you go back and you start to realise that this is a, it's like looking behind the curtain mm-hmm. or the magician saying, come on, I'll show you how I put the rabbit into the hat, you know. And now you have the kind of backstage thing as well that you realise this is a craft. It's something you could learn in the same way that a musical instrument gets learned. And you understand when you see that process that it isn't just something that because you happen to own a clarinet, you can play it. It's something that you that you choose as your art form, I suppose, where you want to sound better. You want to get better at something. And I guess it was, to me, you know, it would have been great to have been a filmmaker or to have, you know, maybe been an animator or to learned music better or something like that. But for me, because I was such a big reader and I was so in love with the power of language and what language can do and uh, it always felt to me like I want to I want to kind of use this as my kind of framework to make something out of what happens to me because that's really what the process is I think is that you know mm-hmm. the world feels like this you know crazy chaotic random raining down on you um, and we are desperate to try and make it more meaningful I think and find some some sort of small way of making it a bit less incoherent 
I guess that's what, and that's what a story becomes. It becomes like a small way of making something out of that incoherence. So it feels a little bit more coherent, even just temporarily. And then you start seeing which bits you're leaving out and which bits you're putting in and which bits you're inventing. And you realize, yeah, that you're constructing something and it becomes its own sort of pleasure. I still love the idea that there are people all over the world and always have been and hopefully always will be sitting around the fire and someone someone embodies a story and they tell a story and we are captured. And just a reminder that we're quickly reaching the last day tomorrow of our end of the year pledge drive. If you love hearing the voices and perspectives of writers, like our wonderful guest here on Between the Covers and Jonesy and Black Books, if you love all the other wonderful KBOO news, music and public affairs programs, we are so happy to bring you. We'd be so grateful to have your help meeting our fundraising goal. Tomorrow is the last day to donate, so if you can, please go to kboo.fm to donate anything within your means and hit the donate button. Thank you for your gift of listener-supported radio for our vibrant Portland community. We've taken some knocks this past year, like many of you Portlanders have, so thank you for any help you can give toward our $45,000 goal tomorrow. Thank you. I love the way storytelling creates a little facsimile of the bigger reality, a bigger world, and it makes it something that is we can look at and enter into and it's manageable. And as I said, we crave that small coherence because the rest of the world, the bigger world, feels wildly random you know, <laughs> most of the time. Well, it strikes me from what you're saying that you in particular, I can the way you're describing your childhood, you had so many beginnings. If you had to keep moving all the time, you had so many beginning of the stories. I could see it being completely relieving to be able to construct beginning, middle, end within your own mind and be able to read that into what you were looking at. That's a really good way of looking at it, actually, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and also there's something in there which is, you know, I'm trying to think what writer it was, Flannery O'Connor maybe, someone said, if you want to find the writer, look in the playground and the kid is on the side watching, you know. So you're kind of seeing the whole game, but you're the quiet observant kid who's a bit of a misfit. I think the kid is a bit of a misfit is often the kid who um, is looking for those. They're, they're alert, you know, they're paying attention in a different way and they're absorbing they're seeing something unfolding and they're making something story-like out of it just to kind of make it comprehensible because they are so good and they have been storing and saving all their observations for just such an occasion. <laughs> and then they don't have to be the person who's the most charismatic or the most outgoing or the, the one who's on all the time. They're the ones who are the kind of the holders of events and stitching those things together in a way which they can then make something from. I, I really am interested in uh, those kids. Yeah, I think probably all of us who have found themselves in the library a lot at lunchtime, you know, <laughs> for whatever reason. So when do you think you started writing in earnest? Though? Um, well, I was actually quite a precocious writer uh, of poetry when I was at school and a few short stories, I must say. Um, I was good at English and so I was good at doing that. I knew what was required to make those stories. I just knew that I had a knack for it. I had a talent and a taste for it. So I, I 
won a few poetry competitions and I won a few short story competitions when I was still at school, which was just as well because I was not good at too much else. And then when I finished school, without thinking too much about it, I went and did a, a degree. It was one of the first bachelor degrees um, at the time, way back in the beginning of the 80s, in professional writing and editing. Mm. And it was very journalism-focused. And I was too young. I'd finished school at 17 and I was so callow and so kind of <laughs> out of it. I didn't really get what they were asking us to do. So I did a ton of other stuff. Yeah, interesting work. And um, in that collection, Dark Roots, that first collection you were talking about from 2006, I sort of wrote all those stories during the 90s based on that kind of 15 years of other jobs that I had. You know, so there's a story in there about, um, say, somebody trying to... Um, uh, smuggle cocaine into through an airport, for example. Now, I was—I've never done that, but I've certainly uh, worked in customs and thought, "Gee, these people are dumb. What would I do if I had a chance, or if I had nothing else to lose? How would I do it?" You know. So I was constantly kind of thinking, "How can I, how can I take some of these experiences that I have through, you know, working as a cleaner or working in." in cafes or saving money to go overseas again to do other stuff. And I worked in theatre. I worked in all different kinds of things. And all those things became the sort of material, I guess, for future stories because, you know, that's a good way to endow some of those experiences into a character who's not you. Yeah, so I'd like to speak a little more specifically about um, sort of thematically what happens in your short stories. We Mm -hmm. can make a little bit of a pivot. Um, it strikes me that often in your fiction, there is a pivot point where one side is a greater tenderness between characters, intimacy or reaching an emotional layer below the conflicts that are pushing upward across the story, the sun and ashes, the farmer's wife and flexion. Are the human choices around redemption and forgiveness a central question that you explore in your work? Or is there a more accurate way to talk about what grabs you? Well, actually, that is a pretty accurate way to talk about what grabs me, I think, because I, I, I think especially with short stories, which I've always loved as a form because they are quite a high-wire act, aren't they? There's, there's nowhere to hide in a short story. You've only got a few thousand words, uh, and in that, it's, I always feel like you're, you're getting a reader's attention and you're saying, I want to show you something, and you open the door and you say, and then that's all you're getting. And, and everything outside the frame of that little door that you've shown them, they have to, they have to bring to, to see if that little snapshot of life that you've shown them is, is the snapshot that's going to stay with them somehow. So I really like stories that turn on a sort of a, um, a simple moment of something. And I don't tend to think of crisis in that traditional story arc form. I don't think of crisis as kind of catastrophe. I think about it more when you look at the where that word comes from, from the ancient Greek. Crisis means a decisive moment, just as epiphany means to make manifest. You know, like I, I kind of take those things quite seriously in a short story because they're happening inside somebody, you know, and so the stories can turn on a single moment of clarity, sometimes fantastic clarity, sometimes shocking or a sort of a resigned sense that this is reality and there's no point trying to delude myself further or this is the shocking moment of my realization making itself manifest and nothing can be the same after that moment all those things are our human reactions to things not going the way we were expecting 
But I like that small frame. I, I think that if you can make a reader care about a small thing because it matters a lot to a character, I think you can really make that um, sort of very, very salient. And when you've only got a few thousand words, I don't think it's about scale to make somebody care. They can care about something very little. And so the turning moment, the single moment, which is the clarity, the epiphany moment, I like that pivot to me is the thing that I think people are staying with the story to experience is the moment where we reach a point where, as you said, the thing that comes up inside the character and will not be denied anymore or the energy that's required to keep it hidden that has been required to this very moment to keep that under wraps is now being, is, is sort of forcing its way to the surface to be reckoned with. And we are allowed to watch that as a reader. And it becomes, people about dramatic tension, you know, in stories. I always look at that as a moment where it's like happening, when something happens on a stage, for example, you better make sure that that important moment is enacted in front of our eyes so that we're not hearing about it in retrospect or something that's happening off stage or something that's just being reported on. We feel weirdly cheated. And lots of things can be kind of compressed and made intensified and so on in the story or even summarised, but we can't, that pivotal moment where we go in one way to that moment and then when we come out, we can never go back to what it was before. There's so many wonderful ways to kind of um, create that. It's all, it becomes almost the, the hinge or the people talk about things feeling a bit engineered in a story. I kind of like the idea that you're engineering something because it's a, it's a point that things shift over. They shift and they change and and there is there is no going back to it's almost just this disclosure, isn't it? It's a point where someone blurts something and there's no going back. Just as in real life, it's not the big scale, it's that moment. And so it's not, it's not when we went on holidays to the Grand Canyon, it's that moment when we were standing there in that hotel and that thing happened. And that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And we have this sense in a short story that we don't have to see all the straws piling on till that moment because the author has chosen this, this frame for us to look at. And that's what we're seeing. And so we, we know we're in good hands when we know the author is showing us exactly what they intend to moment by moment in that pivotal point in the story. And that is, for me, what I would spend the most time on getting right in a story is that point. Another focus in your work is what you call in an essay, the silent, invisible conversation. Um, I'd like to talk to you about your approach to writing um, what is not said, just tacking mm -hmm. on to what you were just talking about, or under the surface, or as you say, outside of the frame. But I'd love to hear the last paragraph of the story, A Pitch Too High for the Human Ear, where your mm -hmm. narrator speaks to this subject in an interior monologue. Could you read that for us? He does, and I'll just I'll just explain that this is a story about a man who has felt that he never says the right thing at the right time. And he's looking back at his kind of failed marriage with this sense that he is a kind of a silent man who has never had that courage to, to speak when it would have been the right time to speak. And something's happened where he's, he's had a dog for years and uh, the dog has been like his companion where he's, he's been a runner at night. He runs and jogs at night and the dog goes with him. And the moment comes where he realises the dog is ageing because the dog goes deaf and he can't, the dog's kind of sense of its own, you know, joy in being a dog, of course, is affected because now he's, uh, he's too old. 
and the man uh, decides to have the dog put down. And this is the sort of catalyst for the, the whole marriage going under this moment. Um, and it's sort of the running and the trying to keep that going and keep it. So he doesn't, he loses it. And now he's, he's left the marriage and he's looking back at um, uh, his kind of new life, I suppose, at what he used to have from his new life. And this is what he's, he's playing basketball. And this is when he, you know, he's, this is what he does. He says this, I watch people sometimes wonder how they can walk around with the weight of what they know. Wonder if they feel like me, stumbling with lead shoes on the bottom of the ocean, swimming in a sea of the unsayable. It's a mistake we make, thinking it's words that tell us everything. It's sound that breaks glasses, cracks windows, sends cats up trees. Bats hear more than humans, understand more noise, let alone dogs. Maybe we're just not getting it, standing here listening for sensible speech dying of loneliness and waiting for whatever it is. How do we know we're not calling and calling all the time? Our throat's so tight with it that it's too high to hear. At night, I hear dogs barking and think how much of their howling is outside my conscious range so that I feel it like a vibration but mistake it for silence. Sitting in the club, turning my fourth and last beer on the laminex, I want to phone my ex-wife. I want to say her name and then hold the receiver into air. Let her listen to the roar of everything we can't bear to hear. Can you hear it, Vicky? I want to say. It's not words. It's nothing so coherent as words. It's all of us, hoarse with calling, straining in the darkness to hear something we recognise as our names. I love that. <laughs> So, so beautifully articulated. So we got to feel it before we talk about it. Um, so in your essay, A Silent and Invisible Conversation, you speak about what is not said in a story, uh, not explained like visual art, a, a painting or a stained glass triptych that you talk about in your essay, that the unspoken narrative is absorbed by a reader. Can you mm. speak your thoughts about that a little bit? Yeah. Um I was doing a course on um, ekphrastic writing with the gallery and um, they asked if I would write something in the magazine about something I liked in the collection that I remembered from my own childhood. And there is a triptych of paintings by Tom Roberts, uh, which it's like, it's, it's like three pictures side by side, but it's time passing between the pictures and the artist has given us this kind of narrative story that the observer or the viewer has to invent for themselves. It, it really asks you to collaborate, I suppose, is probably the academic term of what we're doing when we look at a painting and we make up the story between the frames of these. So it's like the beginning, there's a young wife and a young, a young man and they're trying to build a sort of a cabin out in the, in the bush and then um, by the end, by the third, by the last triptych, it's just a man by a, um, a grave in the bush. And everything in the background has changed. There's a town, there's, uh, anyway, there's lots of these kind of visual um, images which signal to us that we are required to make a story out of something. Is it the wife's grave? Is it not? Is it is it their son, the little child that is now at his We don't know. It, it depends on our openness to wanting to 
have a conversation with the artist in a way. And so I'm talking about between the frames of the paintings. And I sometimes wonder whether that's what we're doing in a way with the imagery that we're asked to look at and absorb and mull over uh, on the page, in prose on the page as well. Because imagery is the, you know, it goes straight into the kind of unconscious. It goes from a writer's unconscious, I think, into a reader's unconscious, and it's nothing to do with um, uh, vocabulary or sort of intellectual understanding of anything. It's more what you're striving for is to create almost a physiological response to something through some sort of sensory detail or some analogy that lights up something in the brain in a different way. That's the best kind of writing when it feels that immediate and that visceral. So you don't need to explain anything. In fact, I would always be looking to resist the urge to explain and just trust just trust that the reader is a really smart, and you've you've earned their attention is the other thing too, that everything you're showing them, they understand is meaningful because they trust you as well, that it's not just there because it's random or because it's you know, it's impressive or you're straining to, you know, make some sort of impressive analogy or some you know, everything is there for a purpose and the metaphor is working almost like a sort of a, I said almost like a navigational tool through the through the narrative actually I, th I think it's it's imagery which provides that it's meaning which provides momentum it that surge of understanding I like seeing that almost like when you're in a little sailboat and the wind gets in the sails and you feel this surge forward on this water you're skimming over the water and that meaning is kind of blown into your sails um, from some sort of energy that's in the in the language somehow and it's it's really um metaphor where we suddenly think oh something is like something else that's what gives that surge more than anything else to me so i look at metaphor as a as a way of having that uh, unspoken conversation about the thematic stuff that i don't want to have to explain i want you to feel it not think about it and then whether you like it or not and this has been my experience i'm sure it's been the experience of many writers uh who are probably you know who are listening or thinking about this themselves whether you like it or not your thematic preoccupations are all over your work like fingerprints anyway. You know, if you tested it for DNA, you are, you are going to find your thematic DNA, whether you are trying to disguise it or not, whether you want to look at it or not, because you circle your, your preoccupations constantly as a writer. It reveals it to you. You accidentally reveal to yourself what your stuff is. So you may as well lean in and uh, let it unfold itself to you first and get it into a shape that you're in control of and then let it unfold to a reader along the same kind of lines because you're going to go through the same experience of being surprised by it, hopefully, as they are. You know, you're going to come out a bit changed as well when you finish writing it, hopefully, if it's really working, you know. I love how deceptively simple you make it sound. <laughs> it's not simple. The process isn't simple, but the, the, the concept of wanting to do it, yes, we tend to, I don't want to overthink that because that's just an impulse to want to write as honestly and as um, uh, to, ma to make the prose feel easy rather than strained and trying hard because I find that very tiring to read myself when I'm reading something where the prose is hesitant or anxious to be impressive. Uh, I find like it, it's, it's like um, listening to someone who's a bad singer or watching a bad actor. It actually takes a fair bit of energy 
to try and stay engaged, you know. <laughs> and I don't think we should be making that effort. I think we should be feeling like we're on that boat and we are being picked up and carried by some beautiful, invisible wind of energy, you know. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up question? I, I um, Within that, it also makes me think, besides metaphor, about subtext, yeah? Mm-hmm. About the other part that's in the conversation without being overtly in the conversation. It made me... Mm-hmm wonder about your writing process i'm trying to picture like do you start with an image or do you know this image is connected to a subtext or how does your particular process work when you're coming up to start as as time has gone on i have got better i hope at trusting that the thing that doesn't quite make sense to me that and it's never a strategy either because once you start strategically thinking about subtext forget it you've probably hammered that story into the floor really it's it comes to you like a sort of a glimmering doesn't it it sort of comes to you and you're not quite sure why you've got these to me it's always about two things it's like two things come together and it's like stickle bricks somehow I don't understand why when I think about the time I broke my arm when I was eight I also think about uh, a nest full of eggs you know I don't know whatever it might be it's just there's no point trying to analyze why those things are seem to be stickle bricks together when you are circling that material the best thing you can do is just put them both in the story and let them let them unspool like a line you're thrown over the side really of that boat (laughs) and the play just can you can feel it you feel something tug on the line and you understand that that's because it's about breakage or it's about fragility or it's something about I don't know, it will it will rise up on its own, in its own sort of energy and volition. And I think the subtext is, once I recognise that, I almost have to vow to myself to not make it explicit in the story, to have nobody talk about it, to have no character become my kind of sock puppet, saying, isn't it funny how fragility and childhood, <laughs> it, as soon as I do that and make it explicit, it feels like a cheat and I am letting down my reader who is encountering that subtext on their own beautiful terms of thinking, oh my gosh, that reminds me of this thing in my own life. And that's a quiet space to be in where you're you're stepping into this kind of quiet space in the story where I'm leaving room for the reader by not rushing in to explain everything. I'm not making it easy. I'm making it quiet. Do you know what I mean? If I can, because I trust that, that I have earned your attentiveness and you're not going to feel resentful or annoyed you're going to stick with it until the thing becomes clear, clear in a way that a solution becomes clear, you know, that, that things take a bit of time for the, the turmoil to drop away. And then hopefully you're out in the garden in a couple of days and you're mulling over the story. You're pondering something that stayed with you. And there's a little moment of clarity that, that you, the reader feel that stayed with you. And I know that's true when I read stories that I admire, something in them stays with me like a refrain or like a little, hook in a song and I often ask myself why is that still here why does that still move me to tears why is that turn of phrase so beautifully you know articulated it feels effortless as you said it feels like it's an easy thing to do but in fact it's the that's that great Thoreau quote where he says know your bone know your bone and circle it and dig it up and gnaw it and bury it and circle it again you know that's your stuff and I do feel like the day that we own our stuff is a great day for our writing because now we can just get on with it and stop obsessing over what it might be. You know, my stuff is the small domestic stuff and that's just my territory. That's all right, you know. <laughs> well, it also sounds like you trust 
the subtext to just be there and that like if I was to ask like about your revision process it sounds like a lot of it is don't mess with don't mess with mm-hmm. things and over explicate them and that when you go back you're you're highlighting the subtext that you find but partly it's your familiarity with the territory of where your mind tends to go or your and it's also stuff that I know you know people say that the neurologists tell us that we remember five percent of what happens to us and we have to forget or put aside 95 percent and you know on bad days you think oh my god that's terrible what a waste of you know and on good days you think well got to be the right 5% then, hasn't it? You know, to give ourselves a coherent sense of our own life narrative, our story of our life that we're telling ourselves, it's got to be the right 5%. So what do I remember? What are those moments? I don't think in a big, long narrative of the last, you know, 20 years of my life, I still find myself thinking about moments. Subtext is going to be there because our human connection with each other is never frivolous or meaningless. It's, this is our this is our life. It's the way we hurt and heal each other with each other that creates those interactions that are the ones that stick with us. And I guess you're trying to find a, um, a compressed way, an intense small way of creating one of those, one of those moments that your reader's going to think, ouch, ouch. That to me, that's the even using in one word, ouch. <laughs> I guess that's my that's my sort of last question about revision is if I'm imagining so when you go back and revise is that what you're trying to shine up is the sharpness hmm. of that ouch yes. yeah is I am that- I'm thinking yeah how how am I circling around this bruise here like what am I what am I trying to juggle here what's what's this particular kind of hot coal that's this painful it is always about loss isn't it loss and pain and and having to re recalibrate yourself after something that's um destabilizing that's that's the moments that are great to explore the small moments to get ourselves recalibrated after being destabilized i mean that's that's life that's a sequence of of continuing to stay alive so when i'm revising i'm just trying to think what am i showing myself here i'm not thinking about my reader at that point i'm thinking what, what how can i how can I maximize once I've discovered that impact and I want to make the impact as um, specific as possible, as small and specific as possible. It's like a crystallization around something. So how can I maximize the impact? So I'm looking at what I've got and I'm thinking what should be um, unfolding in front of a reader's eyes, which are the things are important to see in front of them so that I'm trying to make it feel as immediate as I can and which things can just be summarized and compressed in that kind of showing and telling thing, which is all about how we, how we engineer sort of narrative distance and, um, you know, the big thing for me and the more I write, the more this occurs to me as almost like the superpower that writers don't realize they have with prose on the page is we what you're doing is giving a reader the illusion of access into the consciousness of someone else who's not them, the other. And it allows them to go into that consciousness. They don't care if it's an illusion. We'll take anything. We're human beings. We'll take that because it doesn't happen in real life, right? We don't have that sense of understanding what someone is secretly thinking in their unvoiced world. We only have action and dialogue 
to try and guess at and, and glean meaning from what people are, are experiencing internally by what they're doing and saying and the way they behave. But with prose on the page, we can actually put the reader into this very private, unvoiced space of interiority of one character so that the reader has access to that, whereas other characters don't in the story. The reader's in this really interesting position of being a bit psychic or feeling like they're psychic or that, that they're invested in this character who's not them and having this access to transgressive or hidden or secret thoughts. And I think that is what I'm always trying to suggest for the reader is I'm going to give you that momentary illusion of, um, of access into the consciousness of someone who is not you. And it, even just when you're writing that, I often find that such a relief to be in the head of someone who's not me. Even if I'm inventing them, it's a pleasure to be out of my head for a while. One more reminder that today, December 30th, we have one more day on our pledge drive. Please consider becoming a member or renewing your membership here at KBU to keep public radio alive and healthy as we bring you independent voices on programs like Between the Covers, news, public affairs, and music. We rely on our community. We are listener supported. If you don't have means, that's okay. We're happy to be here for you. If you do have the means, please consider a donation today or tomorrow to KBU Portland FM. Just go to our website, kboo.fm, and click to donate. Any help is appreciated keep the lights on. It sounds like your description of what you were reaching for from the very beginning of your memory is that, that that you had that facility of this isn't just a pretend thing and marks on a page. There's some inherent yeah. meaning yeah. outside of the frame of what I'm seeing. There's some kind of a pattern and I want to unpack it. I want to yes. solve it. It sounds like you always had that. I always had that. Even reading little um uh, picture books yeah. and thinking, um, what are they looking at, these children? What are they pointing at outside the frame of the page? And seeing that the the artist that doing the drawings had often put little visual jokes and things in for me, for me, the five-year-old, you know, the artist and I were having a conversation about something that wasn't in the book. It was like an in-joke. Mm-hmm. It was like someone gives you a wink across the train, you know. You actually you're communicating something which which you're using words, but it's going beyond words. It helps you understand other people better. Yeah. So I think the storytelling, I could always feel that it was somehow designed to do something to somebody, a story. It's designed to change a mind or to make you feel something different or give you another insight. It was always for something. And so I suppose I always saw a story as it's something alive that is designed to give us something and show us something. And we use that language, don't we? We say, I didn't get it. We say, what was your takeaway from that? You know, we're taking something from it. Mm-hmm. That is something useful to us, hopefully. And it also gives us this, this felt charge of understanding, which is a very addictive feeling of the illusion of insight is as good as insight, I think, in a story. <laughs> we want to to feel emotion. We want to feel engaged in those fictional constructions as if they are real, as if they are partly us, as if they're recognizably human beings. We don't care. We we do a bit of a mental double think, I think, that we need to see that construction as someone who feels plausible and feels real. Otherwise, it's, you know, 
it's not the kind of experience that we want. We don't want a lecture. We don't want a spreadsheet. We don't want to look at a policy formulation or look at a graph. We want our minds changed by entering into the world of story. And we're, you know, we know we're in that territory when we open that book and we see that once upon a time. We see that idea that here's a character who we're being asked to imagine ourselves into. And we do that as writers and then we do it as readers as well, I think. Well, thank you, Kate Kennedy. What a wonderful talk we've had. Oh, haven't we ranged over some big things? Uh, oh, my we, goodness. we ended up with some big questions, much like your writing goes big. <laughs> Well, there aren't any big answers to those big questions. I think that's probably the most difficult thing to deal with is that um, uh, all we're left with is is interesting problems and and all of our unanswered questions. That is that is the state of you know addressing the future. And I think um, being able to make something, mm-hmm. being a maker rather than a consumer of media. That, that is my lifeline. And I think a lot of people are, are finding the same thing. Whatever it is that you're making or doing, it's it's your primary thing is it soothes you. It makes you feel a bit less alone and a bit better. Yeah. Uh, and it makes things feel a bit more coherent, which in itself becomes its own pleasure and own reward. And then if you manage to make something other people uh, like to read or experience or look at or listen to or dance to, uh, that's just the ultimate human bonus of mm-hmm. we do better in groups than we do by ourselves. That's the bottom yeah. line. <laughs> so one last question. What are you writing and reading? Well, I am always reading. At the moment, I'm a judge for a competition here mm. called the Stella Awards, which is giving me access to all kinds of new um, nonfiction, fiction and poetry written by women uh, over the last year here in Australia. So there's 220 new books, and I have just been reading those, enjoying them. I've been reading this fantastic collection by Danielle McLaughlin called Dinosaurs on the Planets, Irish writer. This is a beautiful book. Always just looking at what I've got here. Short story collections, you know, looking at old favourites again. Laurie Moore, looking at Colin McCann, what he says about writing. Um, trying to read a bit of everything, a bit of nonfiction, a bit of fiction, a bit of poetry. I'm writing some new poems of late. I find myself writing some shorter things and some very short kind of flash fiction pieces of late. Little thousand word stories, which have been really satisfying, like doing a Rubik's Cube or something, you know, it's like a little, to actually find a very small vessel and to um, and to um, enact something in that small space of a thousand words and open and close that door very quickly has been really satisfying and interesting. So that's been good too. That sounds yeah. great. And gardening, being out in the garden has been very nice. That sounds great. Summer over here right now. So Oh, you're a summer. Yeah. Yeah. Which is beautiful. And just not having listening to anything, just actually digging in the garden or weeding or doing something which is like head off and hands on for a while. Yeah. That's what I would call, you know, people say, have a mental health day. That's a great idea. Turn everything off. Is my... <laughs> You've got enough in there. <laughs> well, happy gardening. Thank you. And I'm going to head out so there much. now. Oh, good. Thank you so much, Shabby. Yeah, of course. Thanks for listening to this week's Between the Covers with me, your host, Avi Marr, with musical help from John Beck. 